Well, hey, good morning, Exchange. I hope you are well. It is a good morning. Uh, it's always an, an incredible thing to welcome uh, new family members in. And so I hope you'll take the chance to, to get to know them if you haven't already, um, especially next week with tacos. So that's a good thing. We are in Luke chapter 24 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there or scroll there, we're in a series called The Risen Christ. And the idea behind this is to look at about five different places that Jesus shows up after the resurrection. And if you've kind of like tracked with us for a couple of weeks, Easter, and then last week uh, at the tomb, you realize that Jesus chooses to have very specific conversations uh, with specific people, uh, I think for uh, very good reason. Last week, I don't know if you caught this, but you, you hear this story of Peter and John and Mary going to the tomb. Peter and John go to uh, the tomb and see it empty. They leave and Mary is left with the conversation with Jesus. And I, I think about that and I think about that, that Jesus must have been waiting for John and Peter to leave for some reason. He, he could have revealed uh, himself to them and it's, instead he chooses to wait to have this conversation with Mary. This conversation where he reminds her of the promises that he has made. And this week we, we look at a story of a couple of his disciples, a couple of his followers who live in hopelessness in this moment. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase hindsight is twenty twenty, but it means that we see everything clearly uh, after we've already seen it or after we've already lived it. Uh, I think about a movie uh, called The Book of Eli. Uh, it came out in 2010. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it, but it's been 13 years. You've had your chance, okay? So at the end of the movie, uh, the, the movie is it's staged in a way that this guy, Eli, he's like 30 years outside of an apocalyptic world. Now everything is gone, and there's one copy of the Bible left. He hears from God, and he's doing this journey across the country to take this Bible to a printing press where they can duplicate it again. And so it's in the movie, it sounds like a Christian movie, it's not, uh, but it, in the movie, um, God is directing him and moving him in ways that he can make his way to this printing press. And at the very end, at the very end of the movie, you realize that Eli is blind. And as soon as you realize that, you're like, oh, wait a second, I'm going to watch this movie again right now. You know, all the way from the beginning, this doesn't make sense. And then you watch the movie completely different than you did the first time. And I think for many of Jesus' disciples, as soon as this resurrection story happened, they look back and they say, oh my gosh, this is so much different than what I thought. This was so much different than I expected it to be. And it's so much different than I ever hoped it would be. But in this moment, the disciples are kind of living in between those moments, They're living in what I would call the time between times. They're living uh, in between Easter and Pentecost. They don't yet have the Spirit of God living within them yet. They've not been uh, fully revealed everything that has been given. They have, have knowledge of the prophets and all the things, and yet still are confused. And in this moment, they will use the word hopeless. They will actually say, we had, we had hoped that Jesus was somebody different. And so we find these two followers of Jesus 
walking on a road from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And that's where Jesus meets them. I love what the Apostle Paul writes later to a church at Ephesus. And he says this, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's as if Paul was saying, I I hope you can see clearly. And watch what he says that this, this, this clear sight will do, what it will produce. He says this, so that you will know the hope of his calling, what the riches of his glory and inheritance are, and the surpassing greatness of his power towards those who believe. And these are in accordance with the working of his strength and his might. Watch this. How does he do this? How does he lighten us? He brought about it in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. Paul says specifically that Christ's resurrection enlightens our eyes. It's as if Christ's resurrection brings our focus into 2020 vision to help us see the true hope of his calling, the glory of our inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of his power. And Paul says that when we get a glimpse of the resurrection and fully take it in, the result is hope and what he's promised, assurance in our position before God and our confidence in the power in his lives. These three gifts are important to us and essential for the Christian life. But it's not where these two followers are today. As I said before, they actually use the word hopeless. I wonder if you've ever been at a spot like that. In a moment, we'll get to this section where they tell Jesus, we had hoped that he was someone different. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found yourselves in the, in, in the moment of just complete honesty and disappointment where you might be willing to think it, maybe not say it, maybe for some of us we have, maybe you've said these things. I just kind of hoped Jesus was somebody different. I just kind of hoped that Jesus would do something different. That he would show up different. If you have, you're not alone. These two walking from Jerusalem find themselves in this conversation with Jesus, not knowing, and say, we just hoped he was different. Uh, Let's read the passage together and work our way through. Luke 24, we're starting verse 13. He says this, And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about the things that had happened. So that very day is Easter Sunday, right? So that very day is the day that Christ had risen from the dead. Now the text gives us a couple of clues about what's happening and we can make some pretty good assumptions about the things that's not in here. There are two of them. The text tells us, uh, he later tells us, Luke tells us that uh, one of their names is Cleopas. Another um, is anonymous, but however, we know that the two invited Jesus to stay with them later. So it's very possible, maybe even probable, that this was a husband and wife. Luke didn't feel the need to clarify, but we could assume. They were most likely in Jerusalem for the Passover, as Jesus' followers were. And we know that they end up going back to the Twelve. Later on in the story, they will go back to Jerusalem, to the Twelve, uh, specifically to tell them about Jesus. So they have some kind of intimate knowledge or relationship with Jesus and his disciples. And they're going back to Emmaus, back to their home, disappointed and hopeless. 
We even know that they were aware of Mary's claims that the tomb is empty. So I want you to process this with me. If you were seven miles from Jerusalem and saw all of this happen, now if you were, you were going to need to go back to Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem. You were in Jerusalem on the day that the tomb is empty, on the day that Jesus had promised he was going to raise from the dead, and on the day that some of Jesus' disciples came back and said, he's not here. If I were in Jerusalem at that moment, and had any hope at all, I would have stayed. I would have stayed in Jerusalem. And yet we find these followers of Jesus going back to Emmaus, going back home, hopeless. It's interesting to know and understand that they are living in the in-between, as I said. There's hope and fear, excitement and doubt, knowledge and confusion. And as they are on the road, they're talking, as you do when you're overwhelmed, when you've experienced something that's difficult to process. They're processing what they've encountered. And while they are, something incredible happens. Jesus shows up. Verse 15. As they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, and then one of them named Cleopas answered and said, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's a really interesting story, isn't it? Jesus approaches, and as the text says that their eyes were kept from recognizing. It's interesting, uh, to be kept from recognizing, it's implied that they would uh, naturally know Jesus. The Greek uh, for, for prevented here means to control or hold, restrain. It suggests an operative that's beyond the natural. There are two, uh, the two are not simply imperative or, or worse, uh, blinded by Satan. This is confirmed in verse 31 when it's reversed that their eyes were opened. For some reason, Jesus wanted to keep them from seeing who he was. He wanted to see and to hear his faith. So he asked this question. I love this about Jesus. Jesus walks up and he says to them, hey guys, what you talking about? I really believe that Jesus would have used what you. He would have said, what you, what you talking about? Right? And they look at him like he's crazy. Like you have to be literally the only person in or around Jerusalem that doesn't know what we're talking about or would not be having this conversation yourself. This is crazy. There's this guy named Jesus, right? And they start to explain to him a little bit about what uh, they're saying, but not before Jesus says something to them. Uh, their hearts are heavy. They're confused. They're depressed, disappointed, frustrated, scared, afraid for their lives. And Jesus asks a question in verse 19. I love this. He goes, what things? What things? Jesus obviously knew the answer to that. But I think that Jesus sees the pain in their eyes. I think he's modeling something that we know of the Father. And that's this. He listens to us. Even when Jesus has the answer, even when Jesus knows and understands the answer to our problems and our hopelessness, he listens to us. Do you know that? 
that even when Jesus could hear our questions, our doubts, our fears, our circumstance, even when Jesus could, could just immediately stop and just kind of sometimes, I don't know if, if you were like me, but as a dad, sometimes, you know, like I get home after work and sometimes the problems that I encounter, I would call insignificant, right? We call those problems screen problems. Dad, I lost my password for this. I need, you know, like I got kicked out of this thing or whatever. And I'll admit, sometimes my responses are not friendly. You know, they often come in sarcastic, like sarcasm and just more aggression than passive, you know, kind of like, yes. I've been waiting my entire day for a screen question. Thank you for greeting me with this. As soon as I got home, you know, and they're like, okay, dad, okay. I just sometimes picture Jesus like us coming to him with our, with our problems. I mean, he's the creator of the world. He spoke it all into existence. He knows these things. And we come to him with our circumstance. And sometimes I think in my own humanity, I picture him going, would you just stop talking But he doesn't do that. Jesus literally says, what things? He sees the heaviness on their heart. He sees it in their eyes. The, the text says that they stopped and stood still and they were sad. And Jesus says, tell me what's going on, guys. I love this about Jesus. That he's modeling what the Father says he does. He hears us. Even when he has the solutions to our problems, even when he's already known those problems, even when he's very aware of those circumstances, he listens to us. This is just a, a small sampling of scripture. John 9 verse 31 says this, and we know that God does not listen to sinners, but he listens to the godly person who does his will. First Peter 3 verse 12 says this, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. The Lord's face is against those who do evil. Jeremiah 29, verse 12. Then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Psalm 66. I cried out to him with my mouth, and his praise was on my tongue. And if I had cherished my sin in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. But God has surely listened and heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love for me. This is just a small sampling of the multitude of passages that God promises us in his scripture, in his word, that he hears us. Listen to this and know this promise. Jesus listens to your heavy heart. Jesus listens to your heavy heart. No matter what is inside and what that heavy heart is, is made of, he listens. He listens. I don't know about you, but sometimes when my heart is heavy, it's hard to communicate when I'm tired and worn out. And I don't want to say a lot when I'm disappointed and afraid. My words don't come out right. And here's the thing. God listens anyway. And what's even better, Scripture says that when our hearts are so heavy that, that words can't communicate. 
Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit literally intercedes our groanings and takes them to the Father. Do you get this? When our hearts are so heavy, even words are hard to come by. It's as if the Spirit of God goes to the Father and says, let me interpret these emotions. Have you ever been there? I don't even know what to pray, God. I love this. The Spirit steps in and says, I do. I do. Let me pray for you. Jesus listens to your heavy heart. And so Jesus says, what things? And they come and they say to him, Jesus, they don't say Jesus, they don't know it's him. Maybe they, I'm not going to make a joke about them taking his name in vain. I think I just did. I'm sorry. So they say, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was prophet, mighty indeed, in the word before God and all of the people, and how his chief peace and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. Listen to this. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some of our women who are accompanied uh, amazed us. And then they went to the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and said that they saw a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of us uh, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. We had hoped. I mean, we had followed Jesus. We saw all these incredible things that he does. We we had listened to him teaching scriptures. We had seen him bring to life uh, the Old Testament passages in ways that we never understood. We saw him heal the sick, feed 5,000, raise the dead, cast out demons. We saw him do all 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 of these things. But then our leaders, the religious leaders of our world, tried him illegally, crucified him before any of us could protest. And then even some of the women, they went to the tomb, they saw it empty, they heard an angel speak to them. So we sent verification. We sent these guys to say, hey, are they crazy? Are they real? Or what's happening? And when they went to the tomb, they saw it empty, but no Jesus. And so we're going back to Emmaus. And I love this, that Jesus addresses them for the second time. He says this in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And I would, I would imagine that they would answer internally to that question. Actually, no. We, we, we didn't think that the Messiah was going to have to come and suffer. We thought the Messiah was going to come in glory and cause our persecutors to suffer. That's what we thought. We, we thought that the Messiah was going to relieve us of our suffering and inflict suffering on those who are inflicting suffering on us. That's what we had hoped. In verse 27, he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scriptures the things concerning himself. I think if I could go back in time and listen to one conversation in scripture, it would be this one. Where Jesus takes Genesis all the way through the Old Testament and explains every passage ever concerning the Messiah. Hours walking down the road with Jesus. Jesus said, you guys have read it wrong. 
But notice this, it wasn't just that they had bad content. It wasn't as if their interpretations or their, uh, their leaders or their teachers had given them the wrong content. Notice what Jesus says, it was hard hearts. He said, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. See, you can have all the right information. You can have all the right information, but if your heart is not turned towards God, looking for Him in places that we least expect Him, and looking for Him in places maybe we might want to hold back from Him, then we'll miss Him always, every time. He's diagnosing something in these two that goes beyond bad content. It's, it's their hearts. They have foolish and unbelieving hearts. And he says we can have all the right information, but if our hearts aren't aligned, you'll miss it. Here's what I would press on exchange. That when we filter God through our expectations, we will always miss him. When we filter God through our expectations, we will always miss him. And I would say this, when we filter God through our expectations, our emotions, our intellect, our passions, we take him off the throne and we put our ability to reason on it. And say, God, if, if I can make you do things the way that I would do them, then, then I'm comfortable with you being God. If I can filter the way that I would say things and have you say them the way that I would say them, then I'm comfortable with you being God. If I can decide what I believe to be sin and you can affirm that, then I'm comfortable with you being God. But any God who has to be affirmed by my broken intellect is not worth being God. But we do this so often. We place our expectations on him just like they were. And they say, I'd hoped that you were going to be this way. And since you're not, you're not who I thought you were. But Jesus says you're reading through and filtering everything all wrong, all through your expectations. And so when the Messiah comes in a way that you don't expect and says things that you don't expect and does things that you do not expect, and he says things that you wouldn't expect, and he does things that you didn't expect in ways that you wouldn't approve of, then you think, obviously, he can't be the Messiah. And so Jesus reinterprets the scriptures in a new and different way, in a way that it should weigh. It's not, it's not redemption from suffering, but really he tells a story of redemption through suffering. Suffering Messiah. I would have loved to hear Jesus articulate Isaiah. He was crushed for our transgression. So they drew near to the village and they, they, which they were going to, verse 28. And he acted as if he were going further. They urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is towards evening and the day is not now far spent. 
So he went into and stayed with them. And I love this, that Jesus acted like he was going further. Maybe he wanted to test them. Maybe he was intending on staying close or heading back to Jerusalem. But they invite him in. They, they really begged Jesus to stay. And the passage gives us a clue why this is the case. Later on in the story, they say to one another in verse 32, were our hearts not burning within us while we were speaking, uh, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining scripture to us. And so they, they listened to Jesus for hours walking back to Emmaus and, and it, they felt his presence. Something came alive in them that they thought was dead. They found themselves leaning in for a minute and they forgot their despair. They weren't living in their past. It was here and now. Something was coming alive in them. And so when Jesus was going to move on, they say, no, 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 no. No, Jesus, don't, don't go anywhere. Stay. Come into this place with us. You know, there are moments when our hearts come alive in ways that Jesus speaks to us. And I think then that the Spirit is saying, pay attention. Invite me in. There are moments when our hearts come alive and he waits to see our response. I love this, that for hours Jesus walks with them and it says that their hearts were burning as Jesus explains the scriptures to them. And as they get to this place, they get to a crossroads where they get to decide, am I going to invite Jesus to come into this place or am I going to send him on his way? The Spirit's alive in them and they're saying, no. Jesus, don't go anywhere. Come in. And I need more of this. I think that this is another brilliant and beautiful aspect of the story, and maybe a corrective element for us here about what we think about God, that He's not bursting the doors down of our hearts. He isn't forceful. He doesn't force his way into your life or your heart. He waits to be invited in. And I love this passage that he says about himself, even in Revelation. He says he stands at the door and knocks. This is what Jesus says about himself. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I love this. But I think it's important for us to know and understand Jesus will not break his way in. He waits for you to open the door. Listen, there might, there might be a place in your life right now where God is knocking. And for some of you, it might be one of those quiet knocks like, the, like a neighborhood kid at the door. You know, and you're like, what is that? Others, you might hear a loud knock and you peek around the corner. You don't know who it is. And you're afraid like you're home alone and want to see before you open. But let me tell you, when you get a glimpse at Jesus at your door, Open it. Whatever door that is, and wherever he's knocking in your life, open it. Invite him to stay.
You're always safest when Jesus is inside. You're always better off when you let him in, when you ask him in, when you beg him to stay. He might be knocking at a place in your life, on your heart right now, where you are scared to death to open the door. Maybe you've shut it off from everyone and maybe yourself for your whole life. You're, you're safe with Jesus. Maybe it's a sin that you've had trouble kicking your entire life and you feel like it just keeps knocking. If I were you, I'd thank him that he hasn't quit knocking and I'd open the door as fast as you can. You're safe with Jesus. Do you remember that he has demonstrated his love for you that while you were still in sin, when you were dead in your transgressions, an enemy of God, he made you a friend. He made you an heir. You're safe with Jesus. I think the only reason that we may have uh, for not inviting him in is, is not really truly knowing him. We've got him confused with someone else, someone that's dangerous. Someone that hurts us. Someone who cannot wait to judge us or smite us. But he's rich in grace and mercy. And he's long-suffering. He's patient. And he's kind. He's the God who saves us. He's the God who loves us. He's the God who already knows us. He's the God who's promised to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Why does the psalmist say, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, he will what? Fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. He's with me. And when he's with me, I have no reason to fear. Invite him in. Can I I exchange, listen, can I challenge you today? Would you invite him in? When we end the service today, we have a prayer team ready in the back waiting to pray with you. Would you go back and even ask someone on our team to help you invite him into this place in your life? Invite him into your emotional condition, to your mental health, to your physical pain, to your past abuse, to your current struggle, to your spiritual hangups, to your relational wreckage, to your financial burdens, to your rational and irrational fears, to your doubt, your worry, your fears, your dreams, your aspirations. Would you have the courage today to open the door and invite him in and say, Jesus, I don't know what you're going to do with this space, but I trust you in it. Would, would you invite him in, no matter what it is? What is the area in your life that you just refuse, that you're scared? You're safer with Jesus. It's crazy that even though the Jesus walks with them for miles, he explains scripture to them, they still don't recognize him. And if they had let Jesus walk away, they would have still been left in despair. Do you realize this? 
At this moment, what they're standing at their door, yes, their hearts were burning. Yes, they had this extra glimpse of Jesus. But if they had let Jesus go, they would have let Jesus go and never knew that they were with Jesus. They would have never seen the resurrected Christ. It took them inviting him in for there to be any further revelation in their life. Do you understand what this is saying? Most often, most often, Jesus will walk with us and show us just enough to say, are you ready to let me in? Are you ready to invite me in? And notice this, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to him. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened up scriptures to us? And I love this part of the story. This is, um, this is fascinating to me. I have many questions about this. Um, and it says that, that even though Jesus opened scriptures and explained it to him, it wasn't until they invited him in and that he broke bread with them that they recognized him and their eyes were open. Everything in me wants it to be because Jesus had a signature move, right? Like all of, all of the artists and depictions of Jesus, like picture him gracefully breaking the bread in half. Everything within me wants it to be because Jesus like karate chopped bread. Anytime he broke bread, it was like a slow motion matrix spin karate chop. And like in this moment, the guys to Emmaus, he does a signature karate chop and they're like, it's Jesus. You know, everything in me wants it to be because of the signature move. And I don't, I don't know that it is in the form of a karate chop, but he does have a signature move and that he sits down and shares the table often with people who just don't quite get it. It's kind of Jesus' signature move. In part, that's why the religious leaders of the day crucified him, because he would often sit down with the lowly, the broken, the wayward, and he would break bread with them. I think what's fascinating here is that Luke is telling two stories. On the surface, he's telling the story of two people who are brokenhearted, leaving Jerusalem, totally downcast, and Jesus goes after them. And this is what Jesus does. Scripture tells us in John 6, 39, it says, Then this was the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose nothing, no one, anyone that he's given me, but I will raise it up to the last day. Jesus goes after the wayward, the broken, the downcast, the despaired. He goes after them and rescues them from hopelessness and says, well, don't give up hope yet. Story's not finished. But the second thing that Jesus is doing is he's going through Moses and, and not just that doesn't mean just Exodus that our passage, uh, our series just ended on. That means that Moses, uh, who is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, he starts there all the way back in Genesis and he goes through all the prophets and he explains all of these passages to them. He's explaining the plan of redemption, God's plan of redemption. 
The plan that has been in place from the foundation of the world. The plan of redemption that's required for life. The plan of redemption that he was foreshadowing with the ram caught in the thicket and sacrificed on behalf of Isaac. The, the plan that he uh, told about uh, when, when uh, the Passover lamb was slain and the blood was put on the doorpost. The, the plan uh, when the priest, the high priest, would lay their hands on the lamb of atonement and send it out into the wilderness. The serpent lifted up, the tabernacle being built among them, all of those things being pointed to Jesus. So it's not just the story of Jesus going after two wayward disciples who are hopeless. It's the story of his loving pursuit of humanity from the beginning of time. The story of him turning all bad things good. It's the story of redemption. It's interesting that Jesus starts at the beginning and he reveals all things in there about himself as if they had been blinded. Jesus says, you're reading it all wrong. And he, it's scripture says that he goes back all the way to the beginning and re-explains all of those scriptures to them. I think as we finished up the, the book of Exodus, you'll, you can see, it's like we have... or. or Sinful, sinful actions and sin places this veil in front of us to where when you look at the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, they just can't quite see God rightly. You know, they come out of Egypt and he splits the Red Sea for them. They see the power and authority in just the presence of God. And then they turn so quickly to form a golden calf. It's like they have this veil in front of them that they're just unable to see exactly who he is. He gives them manna from heaven and they want to go back to Egypt. It's like they're blind and they cannot see. And it goes back to the beginning at another meal that was recorded. Do you remember the first meal that's ever recorded in Scripture? It's with another husband and wife. From Genesis chapter 3. Watch this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who ate now with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. It's twice we see this phrase in scripture. The same thing happening. There's this shared meal an opening of their eyes. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one crawl. One author says this, he says, um, the great disaster of Adam and Eve was not simply and only that they sinned or were disobedient to, to, to a divine rule. One aspect of this disaster was that in believing the lie of the evil one, they became blind. And by blind, I don't mean that they could not see physically. I mean that their perception of reality became so skewed that they could no longer perceive the real truth about God and about themselves. It's amazing that in Genesis 3, their eyes were open to their sin. In Luke 24, their eyes were open to their Savior. In Luke chapter 3, their eyes were opened to their death. In Luke 24, new life. 
In Genesis 3, their eyes were opened to nakedness. In Luke 24, robes of righteousness. In Genesis 3, brokenness. In Luke 24, restoration. It's as if in this moment, Jesus is turning all bad things untrue. He starts the momentum shift because he's not dead. He's alive. I don't know if you feel this in your life. But there are places where Jesus may just be waiting for you to say, do you have something for me? Would you come, would you come in here? There's a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, Steve Jobs, uh, founder of Apple, uh, when he was 12 years old, he was getting um, kind of interested in computers and, and different things and uh, like all the circuits and, and all the things. Um, he, he actually found uh, Bill Hewlett's number uh, of Hewlett Packard in the yellow pages when he was 12 years old. And he dialed the number up uh, and he asked for spare parts from Bill Hewlett. He said, do you have any spare parts that I can build um, some, I think, uh, some frequency counters? I don't even know what that is. He was 12 at the time. And the story goes uh, from Bill Hewlett and Steve Jobs at an interview he gave uh, several years ago. He said, um, Bill obviously chuckled, laughed at a 12-year-old kid making this request. And he said, how about instead I give you an internship this summer? He gave him this job and invited him in. The rest is history. Probably displayed by the device you carry in your pocket. And it really started with a humble, almost laughable request. Do you have anything for me? You have a spare part. You have. You have anything. What I love about this is Jesus is even more generous. I don't have spare parts. I'll give you me. I'll give you a relationship. I'll step into your hopelessness and give hope. I'll step into despair and bring life. I'll step into your wreckage of life and bring redemption. And really, all it takes is this opening the door. What's the spot in your life right now? What's the place where you can hear the knock of Christ? It, it may be emotional health, mental health, physical healing. It might be re- relational wreckage. 
financial crisis. I'm betting there might be a spot where Jesus is knocking. Would you let him in? Lord, we thank you for this lesson that you've given us through your word and scripture, this fascinating story that's more just than a historical look at who you are and what you've done. It's a message to those of us in this room that when we open the door to you in our lives, you come in and you change everything for the good. So Lord, I pray for those in the room who maybe have never let you in at all. Lord, would you help them open the door today? If that's you, I I would love to encourage you to to pray with one of our prayer partners in the back. They've got a name tag. It's easy to find. All you have to do is, is when we stand up to sing, I would encourage you to walk back to the back. They will know what to do. We would love to show you what it means to open the door to Jesus in your life. To walk away from the judgment of God and walk into friend of God, child of God. To walk out of guilt and shame into peace and forgiveness. To walk away from judgment and only find mercy. Maybe you've given your life to him in some ways and maybe today you've got this place in your life. Maybe it's a sin that you've been chained to. You've been trying your hardest to break the chains of and you know that those links in that chain are too big and too great and too strong for you and you need someone else to break those for you. I would encourage you to even go back to the back where our partners here have been in that same place. People who pray for you know what it's like to beg someone else to break the chains that they cannot break. There's no judgment. Maybe it's a place where you just need God to do something different than you've done to make sense of the mess that you've made. I would encourage you as we stand up to sing, to respond. Would you pray and ask God, Jesus, would you come into my life here? He'll do more with it than you could ever hope or ever imagine.